Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Go. Welcome to The Durst Show. Um, today we're going to have a special, special edition of The Durst Show. In many of my letters, in fact, in most of my letters, I get requests from viewers and listeners to describe my collections. Obviously, you can see some of it on the wall behind me. I've had a show previously where I demonstrated the Declaration of Independence and <clears throat> letters from George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. So today, I want to go through my really remarkable book collection. Um, a book collection that in many ways reflects the history of the United States from the Declaration of Independence to more modern times. Uh, and so we'll start with the Declaration of Independence. I've already shown you that I have on my wall a very early copy of the Declaration of Independence signed by you know Jefferson and John Hancock and Sam Adams and you know the, the players. Uh, but today I'm going to go through some of the books uh, that reflect that era as well. Um, here is a magazine um, from August of 1976. It's called the Gentleman's Magazine. Is that 1776? 1776. Um, this is for August 1776. That is um, three weeks after the Declaration of Independence was, was signed. Um, and it is the first reproduction of the Declaration of Independence in a, in a magazine. And um, because it was published in England, it does not mention the name of the king. Um, it just says king and then it has blank because if it were to mention the name of the king um, and all the accusations directed against him, that would constitute treason. So this is the first magazine, the first periodical that printed the Declaration of Independence in, in, in England. Um, this is the first book that published the Declaration of Independence. This book was published in 1776. It was called the Annual Register. And what it did is it published all of the important events of the year 1776, and among the most important events, not highlighted, just among the most important events, is the Declaration of Independence, published as well in book form. This is the first book in which the Declaration was ever published. It too left out the name of the king because it was published in England for fear of prosecution uh, for, for, for treason. Well. The events leading up to the um, Declaration of Independence, of course, included the publication by Thomas Paine of the famous book Common Sense, uh, a pamphlet, one of the three or four most important pamphlets ever published. And this is an original copy of Common Sense 
as published. Um, common sense addressed to the inhabitants of America on the following interesting subjects, and then it goes through why there should be uh, an independent uh, country. And um, it's, you know, a brilliant pamphlet, and it's really historic and, and worth, uh, you know, the attention of everybody. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have a copy of, of this in, in my uh, library. Um, then we have the Constitution of the United States of America, a very early copy, with the rules of the House of Representatives, the joint rules of the two houses, and the rules of the Senate with Jefferson's manual, Thomas Jefferson, um, when he was the president of the Senate, the vice president of the United States, uh, devised a series of, of rules, and these rules still operate, and they still, they still dominate uh, the interpretation of the rules of the two houses of, of Parliament. This is a very early copy in print of not only the Constitution of the United States, but uh, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the constitutions of various states, including Massachusetts. And simultaneously with the passage of the Bill of Rights, which says Congress shall make no law respecting uh, an establishment of religion, the Constitution of Massachusetts says, and every denomination of Christians demeaning themselves peacefully and as good subjects of the commonwealth shall be equal under the protection of the law and no such ordination of any sect or denomination to another shall ever be established by law. So you have the Constitution of Massachusetts creating an establishment clause that applied only to Christianity, only to Christianity. And then George Washington changed that in one of the most remarkable letters ever written by a president of the United States. And I have uh, an original copy of that in one of the first books. It was published in 1796 while George Washington was still a president. And it's a collection of the speeches of the president of the United States, the both houses of Congress, the opening sessions with their answers, also addresses to the president with answers from the time of his election, also containing a circular letter of General Washington to the governors of the several states and citizens of the United States. And among the letters that are included in this is the famous letter, which really constitutes uh, a declaration of equality, first time in history uh, that equality was afforded uh, the Jews uh, by a government. And, and, and Washington wrote that letter to the Jewish community of uh, Newport, Rhode Island, and that letter itself is now in the hands of a, a corporation and, and apparently worth tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. I don't have that letter. But I do have the first newspaper account of that letter. And uh, the letter was written in 1790. And the Gazette of the United States publishes the letter. Address. It starts with the address of the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island to the president. And it's a letter from the rabbi, Rabbi Moses Seixas, S-E-I-X-A-S, to the president. 
And then the president writes back, and, um, and, he, and he writes back uh, one of the most amazing letters. As I said, the first time Jews are declared equal in any, any other country uh, in the world. Um, and so uh, what he says is it would be inconsistent with the uh, character of the new country um, to uh, um, uh, discriminate. May the children of the flock of Abraham who dwell in this land, Jews, continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree and there shall be none to make them afraid. And then he goes further. It is now that no more is toleration spoken of as if it were by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoy the exercise of their inherent natural rights. And this is the key sentence. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no allegiance, requires only that they who live under their protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving on all occasions their effectual support. So this basically declares for the first time that uh, Jews are to be treated equally. Now, in England, they tried to do that 40 years earlier, and they passed what was called an act for the naturalization of Jews in 1758. And I have an original copy of that law. It was colloquially called the Jew Law. And the Jew Law, for the first time in British history, and literally for the first time in world history, said, here's the actual original copy of the law, um, written, you know, in, in English, but in, in, in Latin kind of terms, uh, Anno Regini George II, and then it basically says that Jews can be naturalized without swearing to the New Testament and swearing to, to Jesus. Well, that was a great law, and it lasted exactly one year. What happened is after one year, the media opposed it, the Crown opposed it, the Parliament opposed it after they had written it, uh, and public opinion opposed it. And so it was immediately rescinded, and Jews could no longer be naturalized and could not serve in the Parliament. Um, um, it took a Jew converting. Benjamin Disraeli had to convert, his family converted, and became Episcopalian in order to, um, in order to be able to serve in Parliament. And here is the same magazine, the Gentleman's Magazine, for uh, June of 1753, the year the Jew statute was passed, containing a letter that supports the Jew statute, saying it would be good for England to allow Jews to come in because they're so rich and they're such good businessmen. And uh, the letter, however, <clears throat> did not did not succeed. So that's Washington's letter, an incredible, incredible letter. Um, at about the same time, uh, Washington's letter was being uh, uh, written. Um, there were debates about the Bill of Rights. And this is the book um, that contains the first uh, reading of the Bill of Rights 
in Congress. And it's interesting because the First Amendment to the Constitution, which is now the Bill of Rights, um, does not deal with freedom of speech or freedom of religion. It dealt with compensation of, of legislatures. And um, the Third Amendment, Article the Third, says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, prohibiting the free exercise or abridging the freedom of speech. The great First Amendment was the Third Amendment. And uh, the states and, and Congress didn't pass the First Amendment. And this book has every state's deliberations, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, about how they voted on the, um, on the passage of the, of the Bill of Rights, and the Bill of Rights were, were passed. So here's some more interesting material. This is the original copy of the famous pamphlet that Alexander Hamilton wrote, and this obviously is a relevant pamphlet today when we talk about um, Donald Trump having been invited, uh, indicted in New York for, for not disclosing uh, uh, hush money that was paid. This is a pamphlet about Alexander Hamilton paying hush money, and it's called Observations on Certain Documents uh, Containing, etc., the history of the United States in the year 1796, in which the charge of speculation against Hamilton, the Secretary of the Treasury, is fully refuted, written by himself. So this is the original um, pamphlet that Alexander Hamilton wrote. Now, John Adams thought that by writing that pamphlet, he had destroyed not only himself, but destroyed his party, the, the Federalist Party that Adams was part of. And this is a letter in the hand of John Adams in which he objects to Hamilton having written this pamphlet and thinks he's a fool, essentially. Uh, President Adams confidentially reacts to Hamilton's Reynolds pamphlet. Uh, Samuel uh, Malcolm, Adams' private secretary, had commented, uh, commented on Hamilton's recent publication admitting to adultery while refuting the charges of financial malfeasance. Adams informs Malcolm that he has read the pamphlet and attempts philosophical perspective, although he is unable to conceal his incredulity at Hamilton's, quote, gullibility and seeming uh, ability to continue political work with a clear conscience after the affair. Um, so, um, and he asks that this be kept secret. Well, obviously it wasn't kept secret. This is signed. By, um, by, by, by John Adams and, um, hmm, and sent to Samuel Malcolm. So that's uh, an interesting piece of history um, and uh, that resulted in, in Hamilton really not being able ever to run for president. Now here's another Hamilton pamphlet. This is again an original a copy. Uh, letter from Alexander Hamilton uh, concerning the public conduct and character of John Adams, President of the United States, uh, New York. And this is while Adams is president and Hamilton goes after him with a vengeance and talks about his lack of character. And uh, of course, Adams lost the election um, to the combination of Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And then of course, Aaron Burr, uh, who, knew no, who had no principles, uh, although he was elected as vice president and under Jefferson uh, before the 12th Amendment, there was a complete screw up in the Constitution. And if the same number of electors voted for two people, one for president and vice president, 
that it was a tie. And if you've seen the play Hamilton, obviously, uh, Hamilton essentially breaks the tie by saying he doesn't agree with any of Jefferson's philosophy, but Jefferson was a man of principle, whereas um, Aaron Burr was not a man of principle, and Hamilton gets his uh, enough people to uh, throw their support behind Jefferson, and Jefferson becomes the third president of the United States, and Aaron Burr subsequently um, uh, has two things happen uh, uh, to him. Um, uh, he uh, is tried for treason, and the jury comes back with a verdict of not proven, and of course he kills Alexander Hamilton, not as the result of this, but obviously as a result of accusations that each were making one to the other, and they essentially decided that the only way to resolve it is through a, a duel. And so the duel occurred, and um, we, there is still a great dispute as to whether or not Alexander Hamilton ever fired at Aaron Burr, or whether he believed there was a gentleman's agreement that they would both fire in the air and thereby preserve their honor but not hurt anybody. Well, Burr didn't fire in the air. He was a very experienced soldier, having been a hero, as was Hamilton in the Revolutionary War, but Burr was a, an actual soldier in combat, whereas Hamilton was Washington's assistant, adjunct, secretary, you name it, um, and didn't have as much combat experience. So we don't know the facts. We don't know for sure um, whether or not uh, there was an actual uh, firing uh, of the gun and an aiming by Hamilton. Um, there have been some comments that suggest that the, the, the markings in a tree above where the duel occurred strongly suggest that Hamilton fired his pistol in the air. That's possible. Another possible interpretation is that Burr just outdrew him and shot him first, and then as a result of being shot, Hamilton fired the gun in the air. We'll, we'll never know. Um, there is a newspaper that I'm actually bidding on now, I haven't gotten it yet, um, which occurs a few days after the um, uh, Burr-Hamilton duel, which says that Hamilton fired up in the air, but uh, it was not uh, necessarily eyewitness testimony. It was, it was derivative testimony. So that's some of the history uh, early on. I also have some letters uh, by Aaron Burr during his trial for treason. Um, interesting, interesting letters. But the next thing I wanted to um, show you was, um, comes 50 years later. This is an original copy of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, um, political debates between Honorable Abraham Lincoln and Honorable Stephen Douglas in the celebrated campaign of 1858 in Illinois. Remember that Lincoln-Douglas debates were not for the presidency of the United States, therefore Senate in Illinois, including the preceding speeches of each at Chicago, Springfield, etc. Also, the two great speeches of Mr. Lincoln in Ohio in 1859, carefully prepared by the reporters of each party and published uh, at the times of their delivery, uh, Columbus uh, 1860. And so these are the actual Lincoln-Douglas debates word for word. I don't think we could have Lincoln-Douglas debates today. Um, I think that you know half the country would say, we don't wanna hear Lincoln, and half the country would say, we don't wanna hear Douglas. Um, Debate is dead in this country. All we get are screaming matches. 
Um, I think it's so important for people to go back in history and read these great debates, read some of the debates about slavery in the Senate with Henry Clay and, um, and, and, and other people uh, on both sides of, of the issue. And even something like slavery, which today, obviously there are no two sides to that issue. It's an abomination of the worst kind. But even that was, was debated and debated on the grounds of natural law. The advocates of, of slavery said it was natural uh, for inferior, in quotes, human beings, even if they called them human beings, uh, to be subordinated to superior human beings. And, and then there were those who, of course, took the position that natural law uh, creates equality. It, it's so, uh, the, the, the greatest proof that natural law doesn't work um, is the Declaration of Independence itself, uh, which declares that all men are created equal at a time when slavery was rampant. And it was written by Jefferson, who owned slaves. And it was written on a uh, desk, which reportedly, we don't know this for sure, but reportedly was uh, made for him by his black slave who accompanied him to Philadelphia uh, when the Declaration of Independence uh, was written. And so, you know, you, 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 these documents give you uh, an eye view, a bird's eye view into, into history. And I go back and read these documents. When I defended the Constitution on behalf of Donald Trump, controversially, obviously, some of my viewers may still think I was wrong in doing it. I think I, I was right to defend the Constitution against what was an unconstitutional uh, impeachment. I went back and I read uh, the Federalist Papers. Oh, I didn't show you that. I have an early copy of the Federalist Papers as well. Um, and um, uh, I read the debates in the various states about the um, uh, Constitution and about um, the, the, the uh, original meaning of the clause that uh, deals with impeachment. Um, presidents and any other members of the executive can be impeached and removed for treason. It's a very, very serious crime. Bribery, a very serious crime. Or other, and the word other is very important, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And the interpretation that I made in front of the Senate, and which is correct, and which is validated by the debates in the states and in the, in, the, in the Congress and everywhere else is that high crimes and misdemeanors are other things that are like treason and bribery. And so the framers intended impeachment to be limited to crimes like treason and bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. They never talked about impeachment for things that are not criminal-like at all like obstruction of Congress or abuse of power, which everybody's accused of all the time. Uh, Madison was very worried that having a loose definition of an impeachable offense would turn us into Great Britain uh, and into a country that was really a parliamentary democracy. The word parliamentary and democracy were never used, uh, except negatively. Uh, in the founding of the United States, we were not a democracy, we were a republic. As, um, as Benjamin Franklin, one of whose letters I also have, um, uh, put it, a republic if you can keep it, or if we can keep it. 
And uh, we are a republic. We became a democracy only when Andrew Jackson got elected, and Jacksonian democracy, uh, popular election of judges, popular election of prosecutors, uh, which I believe was a setback to good government, uh, was enacted under, under uh, Jackson's uh, rule. But the original conception of America was certainly not a democracy. It was certainly uh, a republic where the strong executive um, and all monetary bills originating in the House of Representatives. We have debates now, obviously, about the debt limit and all of that, and people are invoking the 14th Amendment. Uh, I just don't think that the 14th Amendment or the rest of the Constitution is, uh, gives, gives strength to those who would argue that the president can make financial decisions uh, about the, the, the debt ceiling that has to be done by Congress, and I think we're seeing a movement uh, by the Supreme Court now, the conservative Supreme Court, and they're doing it for conservative political reasons, but they're probably right constitutionally and structurally, uh, saying that there's too much power in the executive, and a lot of the functions that the executive performs today were intended to be done by the legislature. Now, early in our history, that was abused, Thomas Jefferson took it upon himself to make the brilliant decision to buy Louisiana, the Louisiana Purchase. That should have been done by Congress. But the president said, look, I'm the president. He campaigned uh, on the promise of, of, of a weak executive, of a strong legislature. But as soon as he got into office, he flexed his own muscles and became uh, that person. Okay, let's just uh, go to one more um, of my favorite um, books and documents, which I found once for about $10 in a, in a book stand uh, in, in Italy. Um, and it's, this is a copy of The Prince by Machiavelli. Now, there are many copies of The Prince by Machiavelli, and this is not an original copy of The Prince by Machiavelli. This is published uh, hundreds of years after Machiavelli, but why do I have it? Why do I think it's so valuable? Well, it was given a preface. The preface was written by a man named Benito Mussolini. And so this is a copy of the prince that was widely circulated in Italy and Germany um, um, uh, at the time of the rise of fascism and done by the political originator of fascism. It wasn't read much because you can see the pages are still attached, but uh, the Prince uh, preface Benito Mussolini. And so I've always thought this is a, a very interesting piece of history. Um, I wouldn't have a copy in my library of Mein Kampf, obviously, um, although I've read it. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't censor it. Uh, in Germany it's censored, but I wouldn't censor it in the United States. But um, The Prince by Machiavelli and the writings of, of, of Mussolini and the, the people who preceded Mussolini in establishing fascism um, were a real prelude to um, the establishment of Nazism. Now, originally, fascism was not anti-Semitic. That was something that Hitler introduced and it probably cost him the Second World War. Had he not turned against the Jews, who knows whether Einstein and Fermi and uh, uh, all the people who developed the atomic bomb, which won the war, 
um, for the United States and, and Great Britain, for the Allies, who knows whether those people would have left. Those, they were loyal Germans. Um, many Jews fought uh, very heroically in the First World War. And when they went to the gas chamber, some of them were wearing their medals given to them for their heroism in the First World War, but Hitler was a fanatic when it came to Jews, and that led to immigration uh, of a great many, emigration of a great many Jewish scientists uh, to the United States and Britain, and they were instrumental in developing the bomb. I have another uh, letter written by Albert Einstein that's hanging up in my wall, and that letter is written by Einstein and a committee of people who helped make the atomic bomb calling for disarmament and calling for an end to the use of atomic weapons. These were people who introduced atomic energy and now they were instrumental. And so Einstein writes this letter and he signs it in his own hand uh, to people asking them to support the end of the use of atomic bombs. So uh, that's my history lesson uh, for today. Um, starting with common sense, um, Declaration of Independence, Constitution of the United States, Bill of Rights, uh, the Hamilton Affair, Adams, uh, um, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and ultimately uh, ending with the beginning of, uh, of fascism. And um, we won't take letters today. Um, and in, in a future show, I will show you more of my uh, memorabilia. I'll do a show also uh, with sports memorabilia, which some of you will find really fascinating, even more than for the sports themselves, but for the history of the United States and the world that is sometimes best seen through sports. So, see you soon. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.